Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Well, hi, listeners. This is Season 6, Episode 5. That's right, 5. We're already five episodes into the new year. Isn't that how you keep track of time, too, by the number of episodes you've listened to? Uh, Maybe it's just me. So my name is Rick. I'm uh, an author, a speaker, an executive director of Vibrant Faith, which for 33 years, I had a leadership role at Group Publishing, but for the last four I've been executive director of Vibrant Faith. It's an organization that exists to help train and resource ministry leaders. And it's been around a long time, even though it's small. So loving my new gig. Um, So I'll tell you more about Vibrant Faith as as time goes on. But obviously, I I served for a very long time with group. And that's where this podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, was birthed. Um, for the first five years of episodes, that's where this all came from. And, and I still have many, many ties to all of the resources that I helped develop over the years there, including the Jesus Centered Bible, which is um, unexpectedly, surprisingly become like a, a massively popular in the world uh, over the last five years. And so if you've never cracked open a Jesus Centered Bible and want to experience what an immersive uh, approach to reading the Bible feels like when everything that wherever you're reading, no matter where you are in the Bible, has some connection back to Jesus. Give it a shot. The Jesus-centered Bible. Um, a lot of people love it, <laughs> and every member of my family has one. Go figure. Um, <laughs> we we uh, we all benefited from this this kind of approach that that just create some connective tissue between wherever you're reading and, and Jesus all the time. So Jesus Center Bible is one of those things that I worked on for uh, while I was there at group for so many years, but lots of other things too, including the just released to like a few months ago, Jesus Center Daily, which is a daily devotional. And I did an interview with Frank Viola's, uh, Frank Viola and his Patheos uh, site. And one of the questions I was asked is, well, why did you decide to <laughs> write a daily devotional in the first place? And, and I, my answer was that I had this in the back of my mind for a very long time. Daily devotionals has, have had a really big impact on my own maturing in my relationship with Jesus. And I recognize the power that a good daily devotional can have in your life. And you can come back to it again and again, becomes sort of a part of the sinews of your life. And one that really impacted me when I was a young Christian was um, George McDonald's The Wind from the Stars. Uh, just reading that daily devotional changed the way I see Jesus, changed the way I see my life. It just upended me. And my hope was to write something that had kind of a similar impact, an upending impact that kind of winnows its way into your soul. So that's the Jesus Center Daily. Um, a labor of love took me two years to produce. So if you want a little sampler of it um, before you uh, pick up a copy, you can go to my website, jesuscenteredaily.com, 
and get a free sampler. Just click on a button, you get a 10 day sampler of it. Um, you can also see my intro video that's there, or you can just simply order a copy or copies if you have friends you'd like to give the gift of a, a daily connection with Jesus to. It's perfect for that. And um, even though we're not yet at Valentine's Day, Lent is on the way and uh, it makes a perfect sort of Easter gift to somebody in your life as well. So so uh, head on over to jesuscenterdaily.com or just go straight to Amazon if you want to buy it, or you can go to Group's website, group.com, and buy it right off uh, Group's website if you want. And if you already have a copy, as I always say, please, please post a review on Amazon. It really helps uh, to get the word out to others. So thanks for doing that. So this is now the eighth episode in a series we started last year called Kingdom Come. And this, this series is really about getting our arms around something Jesus talked about constantly, but it's one of those things that you just sort of jump over. It's a mud puddle. We, we jump over it, uh, especially as adult Christians, because we think we've heard the kingdom of God so often. We have some kind of vague idea what he's, what he's talking about. But here we're, gonna sl we're slowing down, paying ridiculous attention to what Jesus meant by living in the kingdom of God. And essentially, it's uh, that Jesus came to not only rescue us, from our sin and restore relationship with us to God, but he came to bring the kingdom of God on earth. And that means he came to plant the seeds of the culture of the Trinity in our hearts and in our culture, and then help us to learn to live out, live that out in our everyday life. So today we're going to explore hope slash fear slash conviction, <laughs> kind of an odd title, but, uh, we're going to explore how uh, the, the relationship between hope and fear and conviction in the kingdom of God. And hope and fear are two very powerful influences in our soul and in our, in our world. And so how does Jesus approach hope and fear from a kingdom of God perspective? And what role does conviction have? So that's what we're going to explore today. So the other day, uh, uh, my, my family watched the new Tom Hanks movie that is streaming online right now called News of the World. It's a set in just five or six years after the end of the Civil War, so during Reconstruction, and it's set in the West. And it's about a man who is a, a, a former uh, military officer who uh, lost his wife, you discover along the way, that his wife he didn't abandon his wife. He lost his wife. She, she died while he was away fighting. And he lives in, a, in, in the midst of great grief and, um, and trying to find a way forward in his life. He uh, used to publish a newspaper before he was conscripted into the military. And he decided that what he could do is, is be sort of an not an itinerant preacher, but an itinerant newsreader, since so many were illiterate in the West at the time, he would carry around with him the most current newspapers he could get, both locally and nationally and internationally. And he would hold uh, public gatherings to read from the news so that people would know what's going on in the world. And he got large crowds of people to come to listen to him tell the news whenever he came in town, and then they would donate whatever they could, and that was his income. 
So along the way, uh, the story of News of the World is that he he meets up with um, a girl who has survived a brutal attack that has killed um, the people that she was living with at the time. And she's the only survivor and he meets up with her and has no other choice but to take her along with him. And and he's intending to, to uh, hand this girl off to federal authorities who will take care of her and get her connected um, into uh, like a foster family or some help. She, she was stolen, kidnapped from her white family who was murdered by the Native Americans who attacked her home. And she, she survived and they kidnapped her and took her to grow up and live with them. And so she, she identified herself as a Kiowa, even though she was clearly a white girl of German descent. You know, but her whole reality was really growing up among the Kiowa. And, and uh, she doesn't speak English. And so they have communication difficulties and everything else. But it's a story really of, um, of hope lost and redemption. And it is a gritty story. It is not easy to watch. There is trauma and fear woven throughout the story. And at times you think hope has been destroyed past reclamation. And at times you see the threads of redemption running through the story. But overall, it's a story of perseverance. Um, and it's the thing that sticks with me about this film is that the, the, the perseverance that this film uh, follows or, or highlights or spotlights, uh, it, it grips me in my heart. And I realize that perseverance, whenever we experience it, has this ability to grip us. When we see perseverance in ourselves or in others, it's hard to look away from that. There's something about it that grabs us emotionally and spiritually. And so this really is a story of perseverance where the outcome of that perseverance is always in doubt. You don't know. And, it, and in that sense, it kept, keeps you on the, on the edge of your seat. It's an action movie, but the real action is inside people. It's the action of the heart that really grabs you with this film. So do you have a favorite movie about hope and perseverance? Most of us do. <laughs> I remember when I was a young man, my favorite movie about hope and perseverance was Chariots of Fire, now a classic. That's how old I am. Um, but at the time, it was an inspiring story of persevering against all odds. And it really followed the, the stories of, of two Olympic athletes around the in, in the 1920s who were competing for uh, Olympic medals, but from two very different motivations. And they each had their own huge challenges to overcome. And it's, again, hard not to watch a well-told story about hope and perseverance. This, these two themes run deep within us. Perseverance is both heartbreaking and inspiring. At the same time, it's this strange mix of grief and motivation. Um, at the same time, it's almost like I said, impossible not to be drawn into one of these stories because of that mix. I saw online just not long ago, I was looking around for stories of perseverance and I saw this one little nature video. It's it, Maybe it's too grandiose to call it a nature video. Somebody in an urban setting 
who saw a mama duck and about a dozen little baby ducklings um, in a uh, sort of a dramatic moment of perseverance. The mama duck had climbed up this series of concrete stairs and her little ducklings couldn't follow her. They, they, they couldn't climb these stairs. And so the mama duck was standing at the top of this, of this flight of concrete stairs and kind of prodding her little ducklings to join her. And the video goes on for like five minutes. And uh, I'm sorry to say I watched all five minutes because I was on the edge of my seat. <laughs> I'm wondering, it, are all of the little ducklings going to make it up? I mean, some of the bigger ones were able to leap up to the next step and then leap up to the next step and join their, their mother. But uh, by the end of that five minutes, there was still one duckling who had not been able to do it. And you keep thinking these, these ducklings have tried so many times over and over again. Are they going to make it? It's hard not to anthropomorphize as you're watching this scene and thinking about the number of times that, that we have slammed ourselves against the concrete step, trying to get up on top of it and just wondering, will we ever get up there? And I'm happy to say at the end of the video, that last little duckling somehow found a way, enough energy left, enough desperation left to get up that last stair and join her mama. And then they all waddle off together. It's amazing how uh, the, the, pe the people that took this video, they were transfixed. They, they had to stay and watch and see what would happen. It was like a cliffhanger. So the question is, well, what's going on inside the ducklings when this is happening? And what's going inside the mama duck? Um, you know, is there something more that the mama should have done or could have done to help these ducklings get up that last step? Through the entire video, she's just standing up there just sort of coaxing them to come. She isn't leaving. She's not going to abandon her ducklings, but she's not looking around for a better way to get up there than that flight of stairs. And, and she's not going down a stair and trying to nudge one of them up onto the next stair. She just stands and waits until they all have joined her. So what are the common threads in that story of perseverance and in our own stories of perseverance, I mean, if you think about uh, something that's happened in your life that required perseverance, that required the engine of hope in your life, when all hope maybe seemed lost, when it seemed like you had thrown yourself against those stairs as often as you could have, and you still weren't there, what do you do? That place, that liminal space of in-between, the hallway between what has happened so far and what you wish would happen in the future, that awkward space, that desperate space. On New Year's Eve, um, my wife, Bev, was supposed to have her last infusion treatment of the year. My wife has a immune deficiency that's led to a lung disease called sarcoidosis. And she has a brilliant immunologist who 15 years ago tried something that had never been tried before, treatment with immunoglobulin infusions. And he has a brilliant understanding of how our immune system works and a brilliant strategy for how to stop the downward cycle of that, of that uh, altered immune system sort of fighting, your, fighting itself. And so he tried this experiment because conceptually he knew it should work and it did. It stopped the advance of Bev's lung disease. But ever since then, every three weeks, she has to have an IVIG infusion. That's an intravenous immunoglobulin infusion. 
and they're quite expensive. And that's why we scheduled her last one of last year on New Year's Eve so that her first one of the new year wouldn't be for three weeks. Uh, this helps us insurance wise. And so it was very, very important that she had she get this last infusion on the last day of the year. Um, and yet there was a mistake. Her doctor's office made a mistake and did not order her drug that comes mailed to our home because uh, Bev gets her infusion from a home healthcare nurse. So this always comes to our home in this sort of uh, uh, you know styrofoam freezer box. And they had forgotten to, to reorder it as soon as they were supposed to. And so we didn't have the drug ahead of time. And the, according to the shipping information, it was supposed to arrive on New Year's Eve, but there was no clear idea of when exactly. And her home healthcare nurse only had a certain window where she could arrive at our home and complete this three-hour infusion. And uh, so I went out in my car, I went actually to the, the, the shipping center where it was supposed to be then uh, carried by truck to our home. I, I was gonna see if I could somehow get it myself so that we could still make this happen. And we made phone calls and we talked to different people and we were trying to find a plan B and a plan C and a plan D so that this would happen before the end of the day and all hope looked lost. I mean, uh, Bev had sort of given up hope that this was gonna happen. And I was still thinking, what else could we do? And the only thing that was really possible is if the, the, the delivery of the drug came still that, that afternoon and I could convince our nurse to still come. But it was New Year's Eve. She had plans. And um, my wife felt, you know, self-conscious as anyone would about asking her to stay later. But um, we finally decided it's just not going to happen. And then the drug showed up. So then the question is, should I call the nurse? So do you hear the, some of the threads that run through this story of hope and perseverance? Maybe your story has some of these same threads. Well, I called the nurse and I, I just said, you know, you had, there's no reason that you should have to come out on New Year's Eve. And I totally understand if you don't want to, but we did get the drug. And if you were open to it, uh, we would love for this to still happen today. But if it can't, it can't, we understand. And her nurse, who we have a great relationship with, sacrificed, changed her plans, came over, did the infusion, and it all worked out for that day. And we, we couldn't have been more thrilled with her sacrifice. Um, so the, in this story of hope and perseverance, you know, it, when all hope seems lost, and this is an everyday hope and perseverance story too. It's not like Bev's life was on the line or something. It was just something that we, we invested great hope in, and then it looked like it wasn't going to happen. And we persevered by trying things and, and not just expecting the solution to fall out of the sky, but also trusting Jesus along the way. And well, what would happen if this didn't work out? What, how does that impact our trust in Jesus? What, what were we hoping for anyway? What's the meaning of this anyway? Why, why would this happen um, in the first place? Um, we had all kinds of questions like that that just come up normally in stories of hope and perseverance, right? And then in the end, by the skin of our teeth, this thing worked out. It's almost like a movie. We love it when things like this happen in a film. And in fact, if it doesn't work out by the skin of your teeth in a film, the film leaves us sort of hollow, doesn't it? 
So what are some of the common threads in the stories of the ducklings and the stories of our own perseverance? Well, here's some words that come to my mind, desperation and vulnerability and dependence and hope, fear, and conviction. Hope, fear, and conviction, I think, enclose all of our stories of perseverance. The hopes and the fears and what those produce in us often lead to convictions in our life. And sometimes those convictions are destructive and sometimes they reflect something about the kingdom of God. So let's, let's pursue hope, fear, and conviction and see how these three words attach themselves to the culture of the kingdom of God that Jesus came to plant. So let's start off first with hope. And let's pause here for a second. I, uh, whether you're driving and listening to me or you're doing something else and maybe making dinner, um, you can do this no matter what setting you're in. But I'm just going to ask you to, to ask Jesus to show you a truth about your hopes that you might not see as clearly as he does. It's a very simple question. You just stop and silently ask Jesus, or if you're alone, you can ask it out loud. Stop and ask, Jesus, what am I hoping for? Jesus, what am I hoping for right now? Seems funny to ask Jesus that question, but like I said, sometimes he understands what's going on inside of us better than we do. So stop right now. I'm just going to pause just for a moment so that you can have a moment of silence here and just stop and ask Jesus, what am I hoping for, Jesus? Hmm. So in that silence, did something pop up in your head? Was it what you expected or was it surprising? So all of us have hopes. And whatever hope popped up for you, I want you to think about that hope as we explore a story that spotlights what we might call a universal hope. See if your hope has any connection to the hope we see in this story. So this first story is from Luke 13, 1 through 9. Luke 13, 1 through 9. It includes um, a parable that we focused on before on the podcast. It's one of those bizarre parables. It has a bit of an edge to it, and, and there's some mystery around it. And it doesn't seem like the kind of nice story we would like Jesus to tell. It's the parable of the barren fig tree. So here is Luke 13, 1 through 9. Um Again, it's, this is going to be familiar to you if you're a long-time listener to the podcast. We have, um, again, this is going to be familiar to you if you're a long-time listener to the podcast uh, because it's a story we've, we've dived into before. So here we go, Luke 13, 1 through 9. About this time, Jesus was informed that Pilate had murdered some people from Galilee as they, were as they were offering sacrifices at the temple. Now, Pilate is the Roman leader of that region. So he had murdered some people from Galilee, and they were offering their sacrifices at the temple, like he murdered them at church. And Jesus asks, do you think those Galileans were worse sinners than all the other people from Galilee? Is that why they suffered? There's a little pregnant pause for drama there. And then he says, not at all. And you will perish too, unless you repent of your sins and turn to God. And what about the 18 people who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them? Were they the worst sinners in Jerusalem? 
another pregnant pause. No. And I tell you again, unless you repent, you'll perish too. Wow, Jesus. Uh, that's not a nicey, nice thing to say. What are you, what are you talking about? Well, then he leads right into the story. And then Jesus told this story. A man planted a fig tree in his garden and came again and again to see if there's any fruit on it, but he was always disappointed. Finally, he said to his gardener, I've waited three years and there hasn't been a single fig. Cut it down. It's just taking up space in the garden. The gardener answered, sir, give it one more chance. Leave it just one more year and I'll give it special attention and plenty of fertilizer. And if we get figs next year, fine. And if not, then you can cut it down. So here we have this strange little, first of all, talk about news of the world. Jesus is telling the news of the world to his, uh, uh, to his disciples and those who had gathered to listen to him. And he's referencing two stories that everyone had heard about by now. And uh, these are two visceral stories for the people listening to him. They're scary stories. Um, and then right out of telling these stories, he's asking a uh, visceral question. Do you think these people had this happen to them because they were terrible sinners, basically? Do you think that's why it happened? And he's trying to say, nope, you have a wrong way of thinking about this. You know, it has nothing to do with how much sin they were committing. In fact, um, if you think that way, then uh, you should be afraid in general. Because if it, all of this is resting on your own goodness, wow, that's pretty flimsy. Even though you have a pretty high opinion of yourself, that is a pretty flimsy way to live your life that you're just better than other, other people around you. So the terrible things that happen to people out there are not going to happen to you because in comparison to other people, you're pretty good. That is a flimsy way to live. Um, and it's a pressured and in the end, pharisaical way to live, meaning it, it promotes Pharisee living where you, through sheer discipline, uh, make sure you're, you're the goodest person around. Um, that leads to arrogance and self-righteousness, right? So Jesus first says, nope, uh, that, that, it, it's not why that happened. And guess what? Um, you're all going to perish if you don't repent. Yeah, you, you can't get skate through in your own goodness here. Everyone is in need of repentance. Don't fool yourself, is what he's saying. And then he tells this strange story of the fig tree planted in the garden and never any fruit on it. He was always disappointed. And he finally run out of patience. And he says to his gardener, just cut it down. It's been three years. It's not, nothing's going to happen here. And the gardener, though, the gardener, think about the hope and perseverance the gardener has. The gardener's not ready to give up on the tree. No, give it, give it one more chance. Not another week, not another two weeks. Give it another year. Let me work with it. And I can't force it to have fruit, but let me work with it. I'll give it special attention. I'll feed it. I'll fertilize it. And I'll try to get this tree to come around. So that if we get figs next year, great. You're not out anything. But I promise if, if it still doesn't work, if this fig tree just refuses to have fruit, then we'll, then we'll cut it down. And so here he tells this story of hopelessness, intention with hope. And so the man who planted the tree has been gripped by hopelessness around the tree. It's, he's seen enough. Nothing's going to happen. But the gardener, the gardener 
has hope for the tree. He has not given up. He is persevering with the tree. So Jesus says something hard to people listening. You're not going to skate through on your own goodness. And if you think you are, you're in trouble because you need to repent. And then he tells a story that feels just as hard as what he's just said. But think about how it's colored with mercy and perseverance. Where does the hope come from in this story? Where does it emanate from? It comes from the perseverant heart of the gardener, the one who refuses to give up, even though there's no evidence to fuel his hope. His hope really comes in his own action, that as he encounters this fig tree, he's going to give it special attention to help it to grow. And he's going to give it extra fertilizer to help it to grow. The perseverance in this story is not from the fig tree. It is from the gardener, the one who's investing and investing again and refuses to give up. And here Jesus is painting a picture of his own heart. That in his connection to us, in his pursuit of us, in his in his threading his life into our life, he's not going to give up, even when it looks hopeless, even when there's no fruit showing. He, what, what does he do? Well, he doesn't tell the owner of the tree, yeah, just cut it down. He says, no, I got to buy myself another year, another huge length of time, and I'm going to double down my efforts. I am going to bring fruit in this little tree. Uh, unless the tree just refuses. <laughs> but he's going to give it every uh, chance and every possibility. He's going to invest and reinvest until fruit starts to show up. And he will show, he will show that, that, uh, that tree owner <laughs> that fruit is possible to come out. So how does Jesus answer the hopes that people listening to this story and listening to him talk about the news story of the day, how does he answer that hope and fuel their perseverance? So just think about this for a second. Their, their hope had been invested in their own goodness. That's the system that they had bought into. And, and as long as they stayed above the line, whatever line they had drawn inside or whatever line the Pharisees gave them to live up to, as long as they did that, they told themselves, well, we have this insurance policy against terrible things happening then. What a ridiculous formula they had embraced. Jesus exposes it for that, that it's a ridiculous formula. That's not how things work, he says. He's taking away their poor, fragile, weak source of hope. He's destroying it um, so that they can reattach to a source of hope that is deep and life-giving and foundational and strong. And that source of hope is him. It's he that is the source of hope, not anything about themselves, that it's his consistency, his perseverance, his dogged determination to bring fruit that is really our hope. And if, and if it's his perseverance that gives us hope, then it's his perseverance that fuels our own. We don't give up on ourselves or those we love because we know Jesus isn't giving up on them, and he never will. Our perseverance comes from knowing that his perseverance far surpasses our own, that he's always working to bring hope and light and fruit. All right, let's look at the second word, fear. 
Let's do the same thing here. Let's just pause for a moment and ask Jesus to show us a truth about our fears that we might not see as clearly as he does. So we're just going to stop and silently ask, or again, if you're alone, you can ask it out loud. I'm just going to give you a moment of silence here. And what we're asking Jesus is, Jesus, what am I afraid of right now? Go ahead. All right. Now, now that you have that word or that phrase or that image that popped up in your head, something that you're afraid of, now let's explore another story that with Jesus that spotlights sort of what I'd call a universal fear. See if this story might connect into your story somehow, a story of universal fear. So first we're going to look at Matthew 10. If you're um, not driving and you want to crack open your Jesus-centered Bible to Matthew 10, we're going to look at Matthew 10, 26 through 31. Matthew 10, 26 through 31. And then after that, we're going to skip over to the book of 1 John. Um, the, uh, the Apostle John wrote three letters. This will be the first one. So we're going to, just so you know, right after this, we're going to skip over to 1 John 4. But we're going to start out with Matthew 10, 26 through 31. Here we go. This is Jesus speaking. Now, don't be afraid of those who threaten you. For the time is coming when everything that is covered will be revealed, and all that is secret will be made known to all. But I tell you now in the darkness, shout abroad when daybreak comes. But I whisper in your ear, shout from the housetops for all to hear. Don't be afraid of those who want to kill your body. They can't touch your soul. Fear only God who can destroy both soul and body in hell. What is the price of two sparrows? One copper coin? But not a single sparrow can fall to the ground without your father knowing it. And the very hairs on your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You're more valuable to God than a whole flock of sparrows. Wow, that, in, that ends just with um, this statement that Jesus makes, that we're more valuable to God than a whole flock of sparrows. And this is the, this is the belief that we have such a hard time really embracing at a deep level that we really are valuable to God. Our experience in life sometimes makes us wonder, does he really value us? I've had so many disappointments and challenges and heartbreaks. Does he really value my heart? So here Jesus is saying, don't, don't be afraid. It's true. You are very valuable to God. And we need to hear that because we are afraid, aren't we? Life has taught us to be afraid. It may be we aren't that valuable to God. Maybe we aren't that valuable to anyone in our life who, who says they love us. Are we? So all throughout this little stretch that I just read, Jesus is encouraging them to not be afraid. It starts out with, don't be afraid of those who threaten you. And his reason for that is even those who threaten you, who work this in secret and seem to be winning, that the, the, the bad guys, the evildoers, seem to be winning. They, their threats seem to be working. Their plan seems to be being carried out. Sometimes we have this sense that people are just getting away with rotten, terrible things, right? And sometimes it's at our expense. And is anyone advocating for us? Is anyone looking out for us? Well, Jesus here says, 
The time is coming when everything that's covered will be revealed and all that's secret will be known to all. He's saying that this is a truth in the kingdom of God, that no matter how much is covered over, how much is kept secret, oh, it won't be secret forever. It will be made known to all. Sooner or later, all will come out. Now, I have to admit something here. This is like maybe one of the most embarrassing things I've ever admitted on the podcast. But um, I have a teenage daughter, and she likes to watch The Bachelor, very popular show. I have to, uh, first of all, put this disclaimer out there. My daughter knows it's ridiculous and in some cases disgusting. <laughs> the show. Um, she knows that. Um, but it's sort of the mindless kind of show that gives her a break from the intensity of her school. And anyway, she's watched this show in the past just on her own. But uh, we don't really, in our household, we don't really like watching shows on your own. If we're going to watch something, then we all need to be able, especially us as parents, need to be able to watch what, what it is you're taking in. We don't let our kids just go off and make their own meal, whatever they want to make it out of and eat it in their bedroom. And we don't do that with things that we watch either. And so my wife and I said, you know what, we're going to watch it with you. And oh my gosh, it has taken a lot of perseverance, I have to say on my part. And there have been so much self-control that I've, uh, <laughs> I've exerted to keep myself from groaning like every five seconds as I watch the show. My head goes back onto the couch cushion so many times. However, I have to say, there are some threads within all the muck that are actually reflective of the kingdom of God. Like we watched a recent episode of the show where you see all the conniving and the backstabbing and the bullying that goes on behind the scenes. And the, the, if you don't know the premise of the show, it's... I can't even believe I have to explain it because it's so, well, you know, but the premise of the show is one guy with about two dozen women who are all vying to eventually be the one that he proposes to at the end of, you know, the 10 week journey that they have together. And along the way, um, he, um, you know, boots some of them off the island, so to speak. And it gets down to just three at the end um, that he's choosing from amongst three and one of them he will propose to. And that's the, that's the premise of the show. And the producers throw in all kinds of, you know, drama and all kinds of twists and turns to keep you watching. But what you get to see is what the, the bachelor doesn't see. You get to see all the behind the scenes stuff that are happening in this house full of women who are all vying for one man's love. And um, in this season, we've seen a lot of bullying and backstabbing and just, Oh, it's hard to watch. It's so over the top. And, um, and the tension that you feel in watching this is that the main guy doesn't know this is all going on. And is he going to discover it? Will everything be covered, be revealed? Will the secrets be made known to all? I mean, it's, it's almost uh, agonizing to watch this because he doesn't know. And if he did know, he would do something about it. Well, we just watched an episode last night where he found out what was going on in the house. And to his credit, he called out the two ringleaders for all this harassment and bullying, and he kicked them off the show. And, you know, you, you and everyone else watching the show is cheering. Yes, finally, 
the evildoers are gone. It just reminded me, though, of what Jesus said, that there is a time coming when everything that's covered will be revealed and all that is secret will be known, be known to all. And what I tell you now in the darkness, shout abroad, shout, shout abroad. I can't talk anymore. Shout abroad when the daybreak comes. So, yes, I just made a connection from the Gospel of Matthew to The Bachelor. Um, might have been the biggest stretch of my podcast life. But the point is that uh, our fear comes here in this story from uh, essentially people who have ill intent toward us, and they appear to be able to get away with it, or we're afraid they're going to get away with it. And Jesus's answer to that is, don't be afraid of those people. Like, what could they do to you? Well, they can touch a lot of things, but they can't touch your soul. And you're, what I mean by that is, if your soul knows that you are more valuable to God than you can imagine, then the fear of those who seem to be getting away with stuff can't really touch that. If you're convinced that God loves you, then they can't get away with whatever it is they're doing. And by the way, that thing is going to be revealed at some point. They will have to account for the stuff they do in secret. So what are people afraid of? And how does Jesus answer that fear and fuel their perseverance? What does this look like in the kingdom of God? Well, what it looks like is the assurance that we are loved. The assurance that we are loved. That is Jesus's mission to assure us that in fact, despite what circumstances try to tell us, despite what people seem to be getting away with, God loves us intimately, deeply, perseverantly. So I said we were going to skip over to 1 John 4, and here we go. 1 John 4, 16 through 19. Here's what, here's what the Apostle John says. We know how much God loves us, and we have put our trust in his love. God is love, and all who live in love live in God, and God lives in them. And as we live in God, our love grows more perfect. So we will not be afraid on the day of judgment, but we can face him with confidence because we live like Jesus here in this world. Such love has no fear because perfect love expels all fear. If we're afraid, it's for fear of punishment. And this shows that we have not fully experienced his perfect love. We love each other because he loved us first. Wow, this is just such soaring language, isn't it? So what is the antidote to our fear in the kingdom of God? It's to know how much God loves us. Because when we know that, then we put our trust in his love. So how do we experience God's love for us in the face of all that seems to contradict it? Well, what John says is all who live in love live in God and God lives in them. And as we live in God, our love grows more perfect. He's basically saying that we immerse ourselves, we deeply attach ourselves to God through Jesus. And if we do that, we'll not be afraid. So the deeper we attach ourselves to Jesus, the more we know our heart, the more, more, the more we know his heart, the more we taste and see that he is good. It develops an immersive experience. We're drawn to him magnetically. We live inside of him then. And we start to embrace and know his love in a deeper way than we ever have before. This is what paying ridiculous attention to Jesus is all about. 
It's slowing down, paying better attention to his heart. Because when we do, we're captured by his heart. And when we're captured by his heart, we live inside of him. And this is the antidote to our fear. Because once we live inside of him, we're living inside of love itself. Jesus is love. He's not just pointing to love. He is himself love. And when we immerse ourselves in him, we are living inside love. And that kind of love expels fear. It doesn't give place to fear. That You could say the premise of the fear in our life doesn't mean anything anymore. Um, that, that premise goes away <laughs> and it's replaced, sort of pushed out by our, by our direct experience, our direct taste of his love. All right, let's close off with that last word, conviction. How do hope and fear, what do they have to do with conviction? Um, and what, what is the role of conviction in the kingdom of God? Well, if you think about the issues that are raised in the midst of our hopes and our fears, the vulnerability, the fear, the, the dread even of the other shoe dropping and uh, the, the terrible thought that our hopes might never come through. Um, out of this mix of strong emotion comes conviction. This is what John is hinting at in 1 John 4, that when we are immersed in the love of God through the heart of Jesus, through the portal of the heart of Jesus, we come out of that with a conviction that is hard to move. So here's one last time to just be still and be quiet. If you're not driving, can close your eyes. This would help. If you are, just keep those eyes open. <laughs> but in a moment, I'm just going to ask you to ask Jesus for a word of conviction in your life. What word represents a conviction he'd like you to embrace this year? It's a very simple childlike thing to ask. So in just a second, I'll pause and give you some silence. I'm going to do the same thing while you're doing it. Um, and I'll let you know, you know, what surfaces for me. So here we go. Just ask Jesus. What word represents a conviction you'd like to embrace, you'd like for me to embrace this year, Jesus? What word represents a conviction you'd like for me to embrace? Let's pause. All right. Did you have a word surface for you? I did. So here's what we're going to do. Um, if you have um, an online service or an app like Bible Gateway, I'd like you to just plug that word into the search box of your Bible app, Bible Gateway. I guess if you have a physical Bible, you can also look in the concordance in the back of the Bible. But I want you to plug that word in, whatever came to mind, maybe it's a word or a phrase, just plug it into the search box, but limit the search to the four gospels in your Bible, Matthew to John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. On Bible Gateway, this is really easy. You just, you just plug the word in and then into the search box. And then you, there's a function where you can search from, from Matthew to John that you can plug in there and it will only search there. And what we're doing is plugging a word in. We're only searching the words of Jesus right now. So my word that popped into my head when I asked Jesus for a word of conviction over my life for this year was rest, rest. 
So I'm, I just plugged it into Bible Gateway and up comes lots of places that talk about rest. So I'd like you to do the same thing, plug your word in, and then just scroll through whatever comes up. Just take a look at what comes up when you search for that word and scroll until you rest on something that seems to really speak to you, that you're, that grabs your soul somehow. Just scroll until you find that. For me, it happened right off the bat. The first two entries that came up for the word rest, here's what I found. This is from Matthew 11, 28 through 29. Then Jesus said, come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me. Let me teach you because I'm humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Boy, this invitation to come to him to find rest is really resonant for me. Are we weary from carrying our heavy burdens? Yes. Fear, uncertainty, uh, brokenness, pain, challenge. We're weary of carrying these burdens. And here Jesus is saying, come to me with those things. Come to me and I want to give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Meaning, give over my own agency to figure out all my problems and solve all my fears myself. Instead, put his yoke upon me. Let him guide me. He says, let me teach you because I'm humble and gentle at heart. And if you do that, you'll find rest for your souls. And so I just want to say before you and before Jesus, yes, Jesus, I take your yoke upon me and I invite you to teach me. And I know you're humble and gentle at heart. And I'm grateful that I can find rest for my soul in you. Please let it be so that I find rest for my soul in you. So whatever you came up with, whatever passage sticks out to you, linger there after the podcast today. And then pray. Uh, pray in light of whatever he shows you. Uh, say whatever you need to. Uh, prayer is not a science. It's not even an art. It's just relationship. It's just telling Jesus what's on your heart. So stare at whatever passage stuck out for you and then pray based on that. That's it. All right, gang. Thanks for listening. If you want uh, links to any of the things we talked about today, this is season six, episode five of Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. And you can go to PainRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com and look for that look for that episode, season six, episode five, and you'll find links for everything we've talked about today. This is Pain Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. It's a podcast from RickLawrence.com. You can subscribe on Google Play or iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and we'll see you again next week.